This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. John Calvin is one of the most influential writers in the Reformed tradition. When we think about him, we probably think of the doctrine of election, but he was deeply interested in the Christian life. Fully one half of his institutes of the Christian religion were devoted to the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing the elect to faith and sanctifying them in the image of Christ. Mike Horton, J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California, has just published Calvin and the Christian Life, Glorifying and Enjoying God Forever. It's available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be with you. Well, I have it right here in my hands, thanks to the kindness of the publisher. And the first question I have is, you dedicated this book to Bob Godfrey. I did. And yet we know he'll never read it. Well, my hope in dedicating it to him was that he would. You think you can shame him in reading it. That's a Calvinist way. <laughs> you are naive, my son. <laughs> now, if you'd written a book about Sister... I know. ...or the Fuhrer... I, it might get a pass, yep. Yes, if it had been Sister on the Christian Life, <laughs> then we know that he would be reading this book. Well... In your introduction, you take issue with the thesis that the Reformation is responsible for secularization, which might seem a little bit remote from the question of the Christian life, but I don't think it is. So, for a moment, tell us what that debate is about and why the Reformation isn't responsible and what that means for the Christian life. There's been a spate of books, as you know, in recent years that kind of dredges up an old Roman Catholic polemic, namely that the Reformation set Western history on a slippery slope toward secularization. This united Christendom, this age of faith, was broken up by the Reformation, and that's when things began to fall apart. Actually, study of the primary sources and analysis of the actual state of piety on the ground shows a different picture. Patrick Collinson, for example, at Cambridge University, points out in rigorous detail the extent to which the Reformation is, as he put it, a secondary Christianization or evangelization of Europe, and in some parts, even a primary evangelization of what was essentially a pagan culture. And so this myth that we have of a united Christendom is not really the case. There was a kind of veneer, a patina of Christianity a varnish over what was more deeply a basically pagan folk religion. That's a really important point. We need to understand that. When Christianity came to Western Europe, it came to a almost completely pagan place. And what counted for quote-unquote conversion was often mass forced conversion and baptism imposed by civil rulers from the top down. Yeah, for instance, you know, you have a century before Luther posts his 95 theses, Jean Gerson 
at the University of Paris, very leading prominent theologian of the medieval church, writing a treatise expressing the alarm at the extent to which even the parish priests don't know the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, or the Lord's Prayer. Well, that was the appalling state of things that Luther discovered as he went around parish visitation, but it was something that was noted by all sorts of Roman Catholic authorities. It was an appalling state of Christianity. And so the notion that the Reformation sort of disrupted this glorious, deeply rooted Christian unity is really without basis in fact. Sure, and you can even go further and point out, as I do in the book with many citations of Calvin on this, that for the Reformers, the magisterial Reformers, certainly for Calvin, it wasn't even the case that they were trying to restore a church that had fallen for all these centuries. They were simply trying to reform the church, to go back to the sources, Scripture preeminent among those sources, but also the secondary sources of the ancient church. And they never thought of themselves as starting a new denomination. Actually, they sought to reform the church, and it was the Pope who actually divided the church. It was the Pope, especially at the Council of Trent, who made sure that there was no representation from even reform-minded cardinals who actually thought the Reformation had something to say. So it was really the Pope who set armies into motion to destroy every vestige of evangelical faith. Rome in its reaction to the Reformation, was really a sectarian movement. And the Reformation was about recovering authentic, living Christianity. Not to say that there were no believers prior to the Reformation. We know that's not true. But the question and the point here is that the Reformation was about recovering the gospel and recovering an authentic vision of the Christian life. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that really troubled Calvin, because obviously the Reformation did introduce divisions within Protestantism itself. Divisions that one might have hoped, as we look back on it from 500 years later, not resulted in division. Calvin responded to those divisions with great pain and sorrow. He burned the midnight oil to try to, even before the Council of Trent, reach some kind of agreement and unanimity with Roman Catholic prelates. Then, after that, looked hopeless. He continued his friendship with Philip Melanchthon, and he and Melanchthon hoped that they could reach agreement for a united evangelical expression of Christianity. Calvin said that when you look at the mangled body of Christ, you cannot but cry rivers of tears. And it really grieved him that it seemed churches were being divided, especially along national lines. And that was, I think, an unintended consequence of the Reformation that had a lot to do with the politics of the time and that disastrous move of making the prince or the city council determinative in the progress of the Reformation. Calvin says a great deal about piety. What did he mean by piety or pietas? Yeah, you know, when we talk about piety... We tend to separate it from doctrine. And, you know, how do we reconcile doctrine and life, theology and piety? How do we bring these things together? Calvin would have responded to that question like a dog hearing a a siren passing by. He wouldn't have understood the question. It's a modern question. Because Calvin assumed a view that was held all the way back to the ancient church fathers. When they spoke of Eusebia, piety, it meant orthodoxy. And orthodoxy meant not only right doctrine, but right practice. It meant right worship. It meant right living. It meant right devotion. And so it's not possible in Calvin's thinking to talk about doctrine over here that has nothing to do with life and living over here, which is divorced from doctrine. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You highlight three characteristics 
that distinguish Calvin's view or vision or doctrine of the Christian life from some others? What are those three distinctive characteristics? Well, I think one, Scott, is that Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, is the norm, not only for our doctrine, but also for our practice, that we not only can't institute things that are foreign or contradictory to the Word of God, but we can't institute things that are foreign to the Word of God. We can't institute rituals, practices, doctrines, moral uh, demands that are not found in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence can be deduced from clear biblical teaching, as the Westminster Confession puts it. That's distinctive. Luther, of course, held that Scripture should be sovereign, should be its normative rule of Christ in his church. Nevertheless, he thought that what isn't forbidden was a matter of adiaphora. Well, Calvin agreed with that when it came to, you know, us going about our daily lives, whether we chose this vocation or that vocation, whether we drank wine or didn't drink wine, whether we affiliated with a church that meets in the morning or later in the day. But when it comes to the explicit commands of Scripture, that alone is to regulate our worship. And so I think that although Luther tended to think that if you just preach the Word, everything will sort itself out. You know, I think there's a lot of truth in what he's saying, that when you preach the Word, particularly when people understand the gospel, they don't want relics, they don't want saints, they don't want statues sitting around. But I think that Calvin thought perhaps Luther was a bit naive, didn't really, ironically, understand the sinfulness (laughs) of Christians, that we still are idol factories. Those things don't just go away, they have to be uprooted. And so Calvin really did believe, going back again to the scriptures and to the ancient church, did believe that the worship had to be purified, purged of those elements that had crept into the church. You know, we typically think that what the Reformers were reacting against, especially Calvin, was traditional Catholic piety, but it wasn't. As he himself said to Cardinal Satellito, to the emperor and others, look, Anybody who knows the history of the church can tell you that all of these perversions are recent novelties. Now, most of what they were reacting to was, at least formally, officially, only about 300 years old. Exactly. So these things were relatively recent and as late as the ninth century. Nobody in the Western church knows about more than two sacraments. Right. So if you're going to look in terms of the whole history of the church— Calvin is the real traditional worship guy. He wants to purify the church of the five false sacraments, which were really just elaborations of the two instituted by Christ. And buried them in obscurity. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it, too, that I found going through part of Calvin's argument, is that these other sacraments don't reveal a high doctrine of the sacraments. Calvin says, we have a higher doctrine of the sacraments than you do. You evidently don't believe in the efficacy of baptism or the Lord's Supper enough not to add all of these other sacraments. If you believed that baptism and the Lord's Supper were actually means of grace, you wouldn't need all of these other sacraments to basically make up for a bad job. There are a lot of evangelicals now talking about recovering or relearning medieval spiritual disciplines. And while we understand why that is, and maybe you can talk about that for a moment, but relative to that impulse, and Calvin faced that in his own time, and to that impulse, he asserted the primacy of the scriptures and the authority of them in a somewhat unique way or in a more forceful way, as you were just saying. Right, Scott. I think that the interest in going back to monastic practices, 
to the spiritual disciplines of the medieval era are really nothing new. I think there is already deep within evangelical pietism a history of saying basically, I need to break away from the herd. I need to break away from the official institutional church. I need to leave the world and I need to leave the public visible church and either by myself or with an informal group of truly born-again believers have a genuine relationship with the Lord. And so we start typically, I did as I was growing up in evangelical pietism, with me and my personal relationship with Jesus as the most important, then my family and its devotions, and then the church. Well, what that meant was basically when we came to church, we were just having our personal relationship with Jesus together. We were having our private devotions together, all in the same room. What's striking about Calvin's piety is it moves in exactly the reverse direction. He who cannot pray in church, Calvin says, cannot pray alone with his Bible. So he starts with the public. Yep. He starts with the official, and that then flows down, as it were, or overflows into the family and into the private spirituality. Let's be clear about this. There was no antipathy and all the support in the world for private devotions. You don't have a reactionary spirit with Calvin. He's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Whatever he thinks is evangelical and valuable in the history of Catholic devotion, he's ready to, to encourage himself. Nevertheless, the whole direction of piety is different. In the medieval spirituality, basically, you're drawing yourself out of the world and out of the public church into a monastery and ascending up a ladder to God by your works that you performed each day, trying to merge with God, trying to catch a glimpse of that beatific vision, the vision of God in his glory, without all the distractions of the world and family life and so forth. Well, like Luther, Calvin came along and said, no, God has come down. We don't ascend up to God away from the world, away from society, away from company. God descended into our world, saved us by hanging on a cross and being raised on the third day, and now sends us out, back to our families, and out to our neighborhood, and into our callings in the world. That's a very, very different kind of piety. You say that for Calvin and Luther, we live coram Deo. What does that mean, and why is that so significant for the way Calvin thinks about the Christian life? Yeah, the way I divided the book was to, first of all, look at the way Calvin sees human beings before the face of God. That's what Coram Deo means, before the face of God. And that's really how he starts the Institutes. You know, first of all, by with the broadest horizon, the broadest circumference, even with the light of nature— Human beings know that there is a God, but because of the judgment that they feel in their conscience, they fabricate idols and will never turn to the true God. They don't have true piety. And this only comes when we're not only living before the face of God, but we come to God through Jesus Christ, the only mediator. And so Calvin moves from this broadest circumference of everybody knowing that there's a God to that being a condemning message, basically what Paul says in Romans 1 and 2, that it's this knowledge that holds us guilty before God, and then the good news of Jesus Christ who reconciles us to the Father, and any other approach Calvin, like Luther, calls seeking God outside the way, looking for God outside of Jesus Christ. So that's the reason I broke the book up into these sections, living before the face of God, living in Christ, 
and living in the church and then living in society. All of that is a way of sort of breaking down the many insights that Calvin has on the Christian life. What does it mean to say about God that for Calvin, we're not asking about a what, but a who? Mm. And what does that imply for the Christian life? Yeah, Calvin says that the typical manuals of theology that you learned in seminary in the 16th century started with that question, what is God? What is the essence of God? What is divinity? Of course, that gets you embroiled in all sorts of speculations. Calvin says men are mad who want to inquire what God is. He says uh, God's essence is to be adored rather than pride into. We don't know God in his essence. We know God according to his works. And he was here picking up a really thick theme in the church fathers, particularly the Eastern church fathers, and it's a very important point. This is why Calvin eschews any kind of speculation. Again, that's seeking Christ outside the way or looking for God outside the way. We have to follow the breadcrumb trail to God that God himself has laid out. In fact, it's not really we who are finding God, it's God who is finding us. And so Calvin says when we talk about God, let's ask questions that actually are beneficial for us. What kind of God are we dealing with? What are his attributes? What is he like? He's a character in this unfolding drama from Genesis to Revelation. I want to know God that way. I don't want to dive into these speculations about the essence of God. I want to know God as he's revealed himself as an actor in history, as the creator, redeemer, and consummator. And so we, believers, who are right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for Calvin, are being sanctified in the context of a personal covenantal relation to that God. Exactly, exactly. And for Calvin, again, it's very, very personal, but never private. His spirituality, I think one of the great things about his piety is, you know, in Roman Catholic piety, I think it's not an overgeneralization to say it is public, but never personal. Even your faith is the faith of the church. You know, you're not really engaged in your own act of faith in Christ. You're participating in the church's act of faith. No. Which is kind of a relief in some way. I (laughs) I believe whatever the church says. Yes, you can imagine why that would be attractive. Because now, in a sense, you're off the hook for your own personal appropriation of these things. Yep. And you can have, as you were suggesting, implicit faith in whatever the institution says without reckoning with it directly, personally. And that's not of the essence of the thing. That's why Calvin calls it ignorance masquerading as faith. And for Calvin, we need to have a conscious, intelligent, instructed, personal faith, but as you say, one that's never private. That seems like a really big distinction, because American Christianity tends to value, as you were suggesting earlier, the private over the public. Yep. Calvin didn't make that choice. He didn't make that choice because, really, at the heart of his thinking about our relationship with God is union with Christ. And you can't talk about union with the head for very long before you're talking also about union with his members. So it's not just that God chose me, it's that God chose all of these other people for me as my brothers and sisters. I can't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I can't be united to Christ, the head, without simultaneously being part of this visible body. And for him, it was visible. He also held to the invisible church as Augustine did. 
The visible church is for now a mixed body. There are elect and reprobate, sheep and goats, wheat and tares, but it really is the church. The visible church is the only church that we as embodied human beings have to do with. God knows the invisible church. We know the visible church, and it's incumbent upon us to join and to be a part of and be under the discipline of to share in the joys and burdens of that body wherever we find its local expression. As a church historian, I have always believed that the confessions of the Reformed churches are the best summary of biblical teaching, and I continue to believe that, and I think our seminary is strongly committed to that. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. We are increasingly in an evangelical world where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and the wisdom of the fathers, the best students of Scripture in the history of the church, are encapsulated for us in the confessions, and we need to preserve that and know that and enthusiastically serve with a commitment to that. And I think it's a commitment that is more needed in our time than it's ever been needed. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. There's a lot of talk about young, restless, and reformed folk or new Calvinists. One of the things that might distinguish the old and settled Reformed theology, piety, and practice, and the old Calvinism is this very Calvinian emphasis on the visible institutional church as the source and place. Well, Christ is the source, but he gives himself to us through the visible church. So help us think about the way Calvin wants us to look at the Christian life relative to the church. And then I want to come back to union, but let's talk about church. Yeah, we think of the church as a service provider. You know, in our free enterprise capitalism, we bring that over to our theology and think that God's running a company rather than Christ being the king of a monarchy. So we have the wrong metaphor in our heads. Exactly. And it is not that the church exists because I and a bunch of my friends who think alike and have had similar experiences, private experiences, get together to encourage each other to have more of those experiences and beliefs. Rather, the church exists because God is preaching. Jesus Christ himself is talking a new creation into existence. That gets to your language of the sacramental word. Absolutely. He's not just talking about the kingdom. He is bringing in the kingdom. How? By his spirit. This is something that we may not have time to go into, but I place a lot of emphasis on this in the book because it's just a major emphasis in Calvin. The Holy Spirit, the place of the person and work of the Holy Spirit is so crucial for Calvin. He never takes his eye off of Christ as the mediator, but he sees the Father as the source and giver, the Son as the mediator, and the Holy Spirit is the one who here and now unites us to Christ in heaven as the ascended Lord. And that's how he talks about union with Christ and communion in the body. That's how he talks about the Word and the sacraments being effectual means of grace. So when you look at the landscape right now with a lot of the new Calvinism, I think you're right, Scott, it's basically taking Calvin's view of predestination and his emphasis on God's sovereign grace in persevering with his people, wonderful truths that are very important for Calvin, and basically lifting them out of a context that actually gives a lot of meaning to those truths. 
For example, Calvin doesn't talk about election in the Geneva Catechism. You could be a young person catechized by Calvin during the week, and yes, he was the one who catechized. Pastors didn't consider themselves too busy to catechize the young. He catechized the young people, and that was what they received said nothing about election. Now, did Calvin not think election was important? Of course he thought it was incredibly important, but it wasn't a central dogma that he would weave everything else around like a spider's web. Actually, there are several chapters on the sacraments. And a huge discussion of prayer Yeah, right next to his discussion of predestination. Right. A large discussion. So he's just as passionate about prayer, and particularly public prayer, as he is about predestination. And he's just as passionate about the sacraments as the means by which the Holy Spirit strengthens our union with the risen Christ as he is about predestination election. That's the thing I think Scott, perhaps, that that I hope people come away with in no way reducing the significance of election in Calvin's thinking, but instead raising the significance of other things that are often marginalized as people sort of are introduced to Calvin in a tertiary way. You're absolutely on the mark. I think if you want to look at the weight he gives things by page count, the attention he gives to prayer and to the Ten Commandments, and to the sacraments in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and in his Geneva Catechism, far outweigh the attention that he gives to election. Calvin talked about election most voluminously when it was being attacked, when double predestination in particular was being criticized even within the Reformed camp, especially in Zurich. And so, you know, when roused to defend a biblical doctrine that is so crucial to the doctrines of grace, of course he defended it. But that doctrine that he taught was nothing more extreme than anything that Thomas Aquinas said, certainly not anything more than Augustine said. The doctrine that he was teaching was simply part of the historic Augustinian consensus. It was very traditional. Very traditional doctrine. It's only shocking to us because we're modern people. We imagine, as modern people, that we have the ability, for example, to will the contrary to God. But prior to the modern period, very few people ever imagined that, so that when patristic and medieval theologians talk about free will, they're not talking about it the way we do. They're thinking about it very differently. They're talking about freedom from external compulsion and fate and things like that. Pagans. What pagans think of as determinism. Exactly. So to us, his doctrine is shocking. But if people prior to Calvin, and even his contemporaries, for the most part, when they read him about these things, so there were obviously critics and people who were not happy, but... That wasn't the target. It wasn't the target, and it wasn't particularly radical in the history of Christian thought. Yeah, it turned out to be that Protestants (laughs) were more critical of Calvin on that article than Catholics were. No, they aimed at other things, particularly justification. Which he called the hinge, or one other translation that I would maybe prefer, the axis on which the whole Christian life revolves. Yeah, in fact, one of his descriptions, interestingly, back to the whole question of defining piety, he called justification the sum of Christian piety. That's just a great example of how, for Calvin, doctrine and life were just, you know, of one piece. If you have bad doctrine, it's going to be more difficult to have a good Christian life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If you think wrongly about God and yourself and salvation and all of that. Yep. It's not the spiritual life. It's not the mystical life. It's not the inner life. It's the Christian life. 
in this world, right? Not fleeing from it, right? But fulfilling, as you describe in the latter part of the book, our vocation that we all have, all believers have a vocation, right? It's not the case that, as it was in the medieval church, that only some people, priests and monks, have a vocation. Now we understand, again, from Scripture and from the fathers, that we all do. Exactly. And understanding vocation, I think, for Calvin, once again, depends on whether we think that that is a topic separate from doctrine. For Calvin, it wasn't. It was the doctrine of vocation, but it was simultaneously life. It was about how we conduct ourselves in this world. So I have a chapter on Calvin's view of vocation, the doctrine of vocation, and a chapter also on Christ and Caesar, how Calvin saw the relationship of Christ and culture, which is another topic that I think is of great significance in our time. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. This really is a comprehensive book. It's well-written and engaging and accessible. It's Calvin on the Christian life, glorifying and enjoying God forever. Two more things. One, you make a really interesting distinction between, for Calvin, right ministry and right minister, which is something I think people ought to hear. What was Calvin saying about that? Nothing that other Reformers hadn't already said or weren't saying at the same time. For instance, Heinrich Bollinger in the Second Helvetic Confession really goes after Donatism. What's Donatism? Well, it's this ancient heresy schism that uh, the Church Father Augustine primarily refuted. Basic idea is, if the minister isn't really saved, then his ministry is invalid. So if your minister wasn't truly converted, then the baptism you received from him isn't valid. You've got to be rebaptized and so forth. Well, Augustine clearly showed from Scripture that the Word of God is the Word of God, whether anyone believes it or not. Baptism is baptism whether the one who receives it embraces the promises it discloses or not. Same with the Lord's Supper. And so the word and the sacraments are not made effectual by us. They're made effectual by the Holy Spirit because these are objective means of grace. So Calvin, along with the other Reformers, is underscoring the fact that even if your minister isn't converted— You know, you learn after growing up in this church, your kids maybe were raised in the church, you find out that the guy just walks out on everything, leaves his family, leaves the church, says that he's an atheist. Gets sent to jail. Gets sent to jail. What do you do? Do you say, wow, my faith is falling apart? You know, is my baptism still valid? Right. Is my catechesis valid? Yeah. All those times he gave me the Lord's Supper, did that really count? And Calvin says, of course, Christ baptized you. The minister didn't baptize you. Christ baptized you. He's just a minister. He's just a minister. And wow, in our day, we just, we focus on the minister more than we do the ministry. We say, I go to so-and-so's church. That would have been appalling to Calvin. The whole idea of celebrity ministers or a pastor sort of owning his pulpit. This is my pulpit. (laughs) Uh, Which they precisely didn't have in Geneva. No. They rotated churches, and if ever there was the potential for a cult of personality, particularly from the mid-1550s until the end of his life in 1564, it would have been Geneva and it would have been Calvin, but he went out of his way in an age when we have pastors who are being accused of and conceding to plagiarism, and you know we have people writing essays about the dangers of personality cults. 
Calvin was buried in Geneva in an unmarked grave. So, by the way, if you're visiting Geneva and somebody offers to take you on a tour to show you Calvin's grave, they're taking your money. If you give them a little more money, they'll show you where he's buried, but it's pretty certain where he's not buried, wherever the tour guide tells you. Exactly. Yeah, that is an important point. And, And Calvin said, there's nothing more natural to the fallen man than to be flattered. And he knew that personally. He, he knew that that was a pull. It was very easy. He says, let's never forget that we are always friends of the bridegroom as ministers, not the bridegroom. We're leading people to Christ. And that's why he never spoke about himself in the pulpit. He never said, you know, funny thing happened to me on the way to church this morning. <laughs> Which he could have done, you know. He people, could have done. He somebody could have... fired a musket outside my house this morning, or as I was walking this week, someone called a dog by my name. Yeah, or when I was 13, I had this hobby or this experience or so. He didn't talk about himself, and it, it was simply because he didn't have time. The text was there in front of him, and God's Word had to be proclaimed It's not even as if he kind of just legalistically reined himself in. It wasn't just self-discipline. It was a, a sense of being overpowered by the Word of God that he was saturated with and wanted to communicate effectually to the people. So he didn't communicate himself, he communicated the Word, and even at the height of his quote-unquote power, which was this little window towards the end of his life, when finally he had a little more freedom, people don't realize Calvin had almost no freedom. He couldn't have been a despot if he wanted to be. The city leaders ran everything in Geneva, including the church. As you point out, the the true dictator in Geneva was Amy Pellin. Yep. It's not Calvin at all, which is... No, in fact, he's the one who said Servetus has to be burned at the stake. Exactly. And Calvin called him privately our comic Caesar. (laughs) I could think of other leaders in the world today who are sort of the comic Caesar. But that's how Calvin looked at despots. They're kind of tragic, comical figures. You kind of make fun of them privately. They're sad. And Calvin had absolutely no use for that kind of power. When he was able to write the rules, the ecclesiastical ordinances for how the church should be run, he made certain that he himself had no power except as a minister in the Church of Geneva. And, you know, we think of Calvin's Geneva. It wasn't even Calvin's St. Pierre's. It wasn't even his church. It wasn't Calvin's Geneva. And not only would Calvin have been offended by that, the other ministers in Geneva who went about their work and never thought of Calvin as the great one, but as a great elder brother in the faith, would have seen it that way as well. We really need to recover Calvin's view of the ministry and see that as an essential part of our Christian life. As we bring this to a close, one of the topics on which you write is Calvin's doctrine of union with Christ. And in book three, he begins by saying, if Christ remains outside of us, he is of no benefit to us. What does Calvin say about union, and what does that say about the nature of the Christian life? Yeah, you know, he he was so concerned with the Institutes, and I spent a lot of time on his letters and treatises and other things, not just the Institutes, but what's so amazing about the Institutes, particularly when he's sitting in Strasbourg revising it, he's obsessed with the right order. He's a little type A on this, wants to have the right order, but man, I'm glad he actually did it, because here's the way it goes— Book one, everybody knows God, so everyone's responsible. But instead of believing in God as he's revealed himself, we create idols. Therefore, we can only find God in Jesus Christ. But it's not enough to find God in Jesus Christ. We have to find God in Jesus Christ as he is clothed in the gospel. It gets more and more concrete, more and more particular, 
And then he says, but wait, that's not all. That's not enough yet. We're not yet at the, at the heart of things. Even if Christ has died on the cross as the vicarious substitute for our sins and has been raised on the third day, none of that has any benefit for us here and now if we are cut off from him. And that's where Calvin says we need the work of the Holy Spirit to unite us to Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel, confirmed by the use of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And there we find God the Father who is favorable to us, no longer our judge. There we find a safe path into the Father's lap where we bring our prayers, and as Calvin himself puts it so well, where we crawl into his lap and give him knots that we cannot untie. What a wonderful picture. The fatherhood of God, B.B. Warfield was right when he said, the fatherhood of God is more prominent in Calvin's writings even than the sovereignty of God. And I think that comes out hopefully in the citations that I refer to in the book. Fatherhood of God in Jesus Christ, where we cry out, Abba, Father, by the Holy Spirit. The work of the Trinity in our salvation. All of that comes marvelously together in his understanding of union with Christ. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.